The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Okay, so the topic for these weeks that I'm here is the Eightfold Path. And the Eightfold Path is the most classic presentation of the Buddhist path. And it's a comprehensive description of different facets of our life that we address if we're interested in this Buddhist path. Some people, when they hear the Buddhist path and the classic model of the Buddhist path, uh, some people I know uh, react negatively because they don't want to be Buddhist and it's too religious and things like that. But um, the, uh, the primary purpose of the Buddhist path is not to make people into Buddhists. In fact, uh, you could walk the Buddhist path, uh, the Buddhist path, and not be Buddhist. And the Buddha is happy with that, fine with that. I was quite remarkable to be in Asia when I practiced there. And uh, actually here in this country too, I don't think any of my Buddhist teachers ever that I had cared whether I was Buddhist or not. There was just, that was not, you know, not the kind of how the game is played in Buddhism. So, but the purpose of the Eightfold Path is uh, to live a life liberated from suffering, liberated from those inner psychological forces that keep us in bondage, keep us caught, keep us um, uh, in, in suffering, keep us in distress or bring us distress. And it's a really remarkable thing that there is such a path. Uh, it's really remarkable that, uh, you know, it's certainly remarkable the depth of despair and struggle, depth of, of uh, fear, depth of uh, trouble that people get into, and uh, how difficult life can be. Uh, I am, I am um, very much... Um, I mean, my, my, my vision of human life is that it's basically, basically pretty difficult. And uh, even people who conventionally have um, privileged lives often have tremendous difficulty sooner or later. And to get through a life without, you know, to get through a human life is to get, you know, in, with some grace and some freedom and some uh, dignity is to have to be able to no- negotiate uh, people dying and Things changing in dramatic ways, and loss, and and uh, oppression, and you know all these kinds of issues that uh, come up in human life. Finding work, dealing with livelihood, dealing with family. Um, there was a cartoon many years ago of um, this big, huge convention auditorium, and the big banner above the auditorium was. It said, uh, convention, annual convention for functional families of America. <laughs> and um, scattered in the auditorium were, were three people. <laughs> <laughs> so, so anyway, I think life is pretty, I, I believe life is very challenging for people. And, uh, and so how do we face these challenges? How do we deal with them? And so some people find it's very meaningful to have a path to walk. Uh, that you can walk yourself. It's up to you. 
You don't have to rely on something that's supernatural. You don't have to rely on Buddhism per se. You don't have to rely on on uh, something you, you know, some belief or tenet, but rather you rely on practices that you can take on, and practices you can you can engage in that uh, 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 carve away through the wilderness, carve away through the difficulties to some place where it's possible to experience peace, uh, abiding peace, uh, compassion, wisdom. So the Eightfold Path described eight practices that we can do. And there's a certain kind of logic to them. Uh, part of the logic is that the first two have to do with the basic understanding that's needed to, have, to be engaged in the practice. The next three have to do with the external uh, behavior of how we live our lives. And the last three have to do with the practice that have to do with our inner landscape, the inner ecology of our own minds. The first three, the first one has to do with understanding how uh, there is suffering in this life and it's useful to have a sense of that suffering, to face it honestly and fully and then to appreciate there's a path through it and to help and look for that path through, through it. And if, uh, if that's what you want to do, is to find this liberation from suffering, the peace of the other side of suffering, then um, uh, the second step of the Eightfold Path, which I talked with about, I guess, two weeks ago, was um, uh, sometimes it's translated to English as intention. Uh, one translator has it as resolve. It's, uh, you need to be resolved or intent on three things that really help this process. One, it's really important to be intent, uh, intent on not causing harm in this world. Intent on being compassionate. It doesn't mean you can be compassionate or not cause harm, but you have to be resolved on that. Uh, then uh, the other thing is intent on being um, having goodwill. Go through this world with some, some, some degree of goodwill. You can't find peace for yourself if there's ill will in your heart. It's just, it's diametrically opposed. It's impossible. When there's ill will, your heart's not going to be at peace. When there's cruelty in your heart, there's not going to be peace, no freedom. And then also intent on letting go. And a lot of people think that they can be happy and peaceful without letting go. So that's, you know, the first two were okay, but what? Letting go. Um, but you know uh, you can't be peaceful if you're if you're clinging tightly to something, holding on tight or resisting really tightly. So part of the beauty of this path is to uh, is to find a way that the heart, the mind, the hands can be open, relaxed, without clamping down or restricting or resisting anything. Um, and how to live a wise life, how to live an effective life, how to live a life that. Um, that we stand on our own two feet and we face the difficulties of our lives and difficulties of this world without needing to uh, uh, close down or grasp or something is part of the task. And so this uh, idea of being resolved, as, I, as one translator translates the second eightfold step, I think is a very interesting word, uh, more powerful than the word intent, the right intention. Right intention is kind of like, can be kind of like wishful thinking. But resolve means you're going to put yourself on the line for this. This is important. And, um, and you're going to kind of gather yourself around. And some people, some people I think, um, kind of approach Buddhism as kind of like a nice idea. 
And, you know, it's better... They don't want their Buddhism to ask anything of them. Because, you know, know, they're kind of... They don't, you know, religion after all. And and so, you know, you want to just kind of benefit from it, appreciate the ideas, or somehow be in the in the scene or something. But heaven forbid that you have to kind of muster yourself together and, you know, really apply yourself and be resolved. But the possibility is there to be resolved. The possibility is there to be really intent. This is important. This is what I wanted to do. And as I said, if you want to live a life of profound peace and freedom, there needs to be some resolve, intent, on being compassionate and having goodwill and not having the opposite. So then we come to the t- uh, step for today, which is uh, uh, right speech. So here, the, fir- uh, the first kind of practical step that affects how we behave in the world is this thing about right speech. Um, and the right sp- what, what, in a sense, defines right speech, it's, the, it's right, it's the speech which is it's like a tool. Tool is right for a certain task. So it's a speech that's the right speech for a certain task. And the task is to help us become free. And it's de- defined partly by the second step, the resolve. So if we're, re- so if we're resolved on being compassionate and kind, then um, the expression of that is in speech, which is compassionate and kind. If we're resolved on letting go, then we have speech that somehow represents or expresses letting go. One of the really dramatic forms of letting go that happens in speech is um, uh, asking for forgiveness or offering, a, uh, offering an apology or saying thank you. Um, sometimes even saying I love you is a very dramatic thing to say, but sometimes it requires a certain degree of letting go. Sometimes uh, people say, I love you, you wish they'd let go. <laughs> so it's not necessarily the case, but it can be. Um, so the right speech is to be, to be concerned about how we speak uh, is very important because how we speak expresses what goes on in our, in our inner life, what goes on inside. And uh, if, we, if we are uh, angry, it's much more, much, more, much more likely to speak in an angry way. If we're greedy, some people are much more likely to speak, speak in manipulative ways and try to get what they want. And so uh, to be careful with our speech, not only for the sake of ourselves, so we can be on that path to freedom, but also so we don't cause harm in the world. And um, because the idea of not causing harm is so important. Um, you know, it's, it's really, I think that, you know, we're, we're kind of caretakers for each other. The degree to which we're so connected and in, involved with everyone and the degree to which we're a community and, and uh, a, a global community, a local community of families and how deeply we're connected to each other is really something and uh, to appreciate uh, how to care for that and be supportive of people. So the Eightfold Path is eight steps. Four of those eight steps have to do with our relationship to other people, how we live in the world with people. It's such a, it's such a hugely important aspect of our life is our uh, interpersonal lives. So this right resolve, since two of them, two of, this, two of, the, two of the right resolves is uh, compassion and kindness, that, you know, mostly that's about how we are with people. Right speech is all about how we speak to people around us. And then as we see the next, next, the next few weeks, uh, the next two are also have to do with our uh, actions in the world 
and then our livelihoods in the world. So right speech. So there's a Buddha gave a fair number of teachings about what he considered right speech, meaning speech that supports this this path. And um, uh, he uh, classically there are four things that define right speech, and it's usually de- usually described as the absence of something. So it's the absence of uh, lying, the absence of um, divisive speech, slander. The absence of harsh speech, hate speech, for example, and the absence of idle speech, or, or um, you know, I don't know what the right word is, but the chatter, idle chatter. So the idea of being careful with what we say so we don't lie, you know, it's pretty much, a, I think most people appreciate the value of it. Uh, what what uh, people who do mindfulness practice might appreciate even more is that um, uh, um, honesty in speech is mindfulness out loud. Or mindfulness is honesty internally. Because what mindfulness is, is really being a very, very clear and acknowledging what's actually happening in the present moment to yourself. And being honest about it. This is what's happening. Whatever it might be. I'm angry, I'm impatient, I'm... I'm, I'm happy, I'm feeling kind, I'm uncomfortable, I'm comfortable. And you can, uh, you know, being, be, and then what you see around you in, in the world, be able to see clearly and name it yourself, this is what I see. So uh, mindfulness is a kind of honesty. And so if you are being dishonest, you can't practice mindfulness in that moment in being dishonest. You're going against the grain of that kind of practice of honesty. Honesty is really seen as the kind of the, one of the basic foundations of the path to freedom. How can you be free if you're not being honest? Uh, to be lying, manipulating, deceiving people means that you're caught by something. And, you know, that you're, not at, you're not at rest, you're not at peace. And um, so, uh, to be careful with speech. There is some, I, I've been told... By that in uh, maybe it's Chinese uh, when they translate um, this precept into or this idea of not not lying into Chinese, they use the character for uh, n- n- uh, no rootless speech, no speech that has no roots. And so I like this idea of speech which has roots, um, something that's rooted deep inside of us. And and uh, if we're connected and connected deeply inside of us, then. Um, you probably wouldn't speak, you probably wouldn't lie. So then the next one is uh, no divisive speech. The idea of concord, of taking care of our community, is a very important part of Buddhism. And so how we speak has a big, has a big role to say about um, uh, you know, whether we create uh, harmony in a community or whether we create separation between people. It's a very interesting uh, guide for speech. Is the speech that you're, is the thing you're about to say, or is what you're saying, or is what you have said, has it divided people, has it separated people, has it, uh, do people feel less connected to each other because of what you said, or do they feel more connected? Is the speech I'm saying connected, connecting speech, or disconnecting speech? Um, so, so to consider that, um, and I, I hear a lot of people who say things that are, I don't feel more connected when they speak to me. Uh, they say things in anger, 
They say things that are not too necessarily towards me, but they say things to other people that are angry, they complain. Um, it doesn't seem uh, harmonious. It seems divisive, you know, the, the way they talk about other people. Then, um, no harsh speech. And harsh speech means, you know, it can be just a, a tone of voice that seems harsh, but um, it also includes uh, like things like hate speech, angry speech that, you know, you're, yeah, talking in ways that are very uncomfortable for people to listen to. So I was, uh, you know, I was thinking a little bit this afternoon, this evening, about this talk I was going to give. And uh, my son, my older son, is a freshman in high school, at right down the street here. You can see the high school if you can go when it's during the day. And um, and the um, there was something I needed to try to fig- understand for him today about the high school. So I went on on the high school website. And was uh, looking around, and um, and I came up, came upon this, and I, I was actually quite um, kind of touched, moved in a I don't know if that's the right word, but uh, by what I read, a little bit disturbed. Um, that this had to be here. But I guess this is the world we live in and, and it kind of made me feel very kind of t- tender towards people. Sequoia High School has adopted a policy regarding the use of hate speech by students and staff. This policy is intended to increase the atmosphere of acceptance and respect at Sequoia. We view the use of hate speech against any person on the basis of race, religion, gender, sexual orientation, disability, or appearance as unacceptable behavior. The use of hate speech works against the basic principle of our school's mission statement to provide a safe educational environment for students. Hate speech is painful and oppressive. Using language that characterized a group or individual in a negative manner can be psychologically damaging to the person at whom it is directed and to others who overhear the language, even if the parties using it are not offended. Common use of these terms by students teaches that hate speech and slurs are acceptable and inconsequential. Our responsibility as educators includes creating a learning environment that respects diversity and advocates for the rights of individual students. We appreciate the aid of parents in maintaining this environment at home. Because we feel so strongly about each individual's right to exist in a safe, positive learning environment, students who violate this policy will be subject to school discipline. So I don't know, it was kind of maybe sad that this is in a high school, but I'm also glad that, if, that uh, it's being talked about and made explicit and you know, we have we live in a society in a world where there's lots of hate, and uh, no shortage of it, and so uh, to emphasize this and to stress this and, and make it a real mission and point in high school, um, you know, I was kind of both very saddened by it, but also uh, heartened that it was there. The concern was there, and um, you know, I, I can't imagine that I never heard when I went to high school. I, I, so it's long ago now, but. I, I, don't, I wasn't aware of any policy like this. Maybe there was, and I wasn't told. The, um, so harsh speech, you know, it's a hate speech. It includes hate speech. 
And so to be careful with that and to do the opposite. Uh, uh, try to find speech that expresses our care and love for each other, uh, not our animosity to each other. And it's kind of self-fulfilling, too. I mean, this is one of the sad things about, and, ben, and great things about this, that um, anger, angry speech, hate speech, divisive speech is self-reinforcing and uh, kind of self-fulfilling in some ways and kind of proves itself almost. But, that's, but the wonderful thing is the opposite is true. That speech that's kind, speech that uh, is, uh, brings people together and creates harmony and expresses kindness and friendship, um, creates more of the same. And that, that becomes self-fulfilling. So which world, what, what kind of world do you want to live in? And what's, what I think is really great here is that uh, creating a better world of harmony and peace and respect for each other um, is, is, uh, goes completely uh, uh, together with uh, helping us become free internally, becoming peaceful ourselves. The two can't be separated. We can't, we can't expect to be able to sit in our cushion and become free and peaceful and happy and full of smiles without any care and concern about how we live and express our life in the world around us. And then the last um, of these kind of guideline around right speech has to do with avoiding uh, what's usually sometimes translated into English as idle speech or idle chatter, I guess. And um, now I have to be a little bit cautious about this because sometimes it can look like idle chatter uh, light banter, or talking about nothing at all, is one of the important ways in which human beings connect and find each other and get a sense of each other. And it's an important part of it all. But uh, there's sometimes, you know, filling the empty space that with stuff that basically has no point. That um, some people are uncomfortable with silence. And I think that learning to be comfortable with silence so that we can meet each other in a deeper way or sense each other in a deeper way is a beautiful thing. I've told this story a few times before, but if you haven't heard it, for those people who haven't heard it, let me tell you. Um, so we bought this building 11 years ago from uh, two elderly Christian ministers. And um, they learned about us that we were looking for a building to buy. And, and they wanted us to buy it. They wanted us to have it, their building more than other Christian groups because they, their primary practice was to sit in silence. And they wanted us to, because we sat in silence, they want to continue that. And um, it took a long time um, before they showed us the building. Um, I think it took like nine months from the time we heard that they were interested in selling it to us until we had a phone call, phone talk. (laughs) And then another nine months from that phone call until they showed us the building, which was great for us. We like to do things slow and... You know, it actually worked very well for us. And um, so, so I talked to them for a few times over those second nine months on the phone, and it was like a, we kind of became really close. It was a, they were so full of love, these, these, these ministers, and, and such bright, bright spirits, and just like talking to them, I get so high and happy. And, um, and we, were, we were like friends, you know, we never met, right? We still didn't meet. Finally, they were going to we were going to meet for the first time, and they were going to show us the church, their church here. And so I came first because we were friends, right? By not by phone calls, so I came first just to meet the couple, 
And then an hour later, the people from our community were going to come and, and look at the place. And, um, and so you can see, you know, the building's not very big. You know, it's basically, it looks like almost like one big room, right? L-shaped room and a few small rooms. So we, they started walking around because that's what you do when you're going to sell a building. You, you walk around and show you the building to someone. And, um, and they were talking a little bit about the building to us, to me. And as they talked, it went, uh, you know, they, there was little gaps in the conversation. And those gaps in the conversation became longer and longer and longer. So we kind of went around the building and we came back to, we had all these pews here, back in their time. And so we sat down on the front pew, the three of us, and there was one of these silences. And so we just sat there. We probably sat there in silence for about 10 minutes. And it wasn't planned, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't self-consciously done, it was, just, it was just beautiful. It was actually quite profound. And in some ways, it was more meaningful to sit there in silence than it was to keep talking about buildings and plumbing and, <laughs> you, know, you know, the kind of, you know, real estate questions that probably you, you, you could think of asking. And um, we sat there in silence and appreciated the presence, the silence, being together. And then some of our people uh, started coming, and uh, so we had to get up and welcome them. And then we started talking again, and so when we had a chance, I... I walked up to one of the ministers and whispered in his ear and said, um, uh, some, sometime we're going to have to pick up where we left off. <laughs> so if I'd been uncomfortable with that silence, you know, and filled with idle chatter and stuff like that, then... Um, you know, and when I was, um, I don't know, 21 or so, 20, I, um, I was staying at a place called The Farm in Tennessee. It was, a, I think, the largest hippie commune in America at the time. There were like 800 hippies there. And there was this teacher who was kind of a spiritual teacher named Steve, uh, Stephen Gaskin who was there. And when I got there to stay there for a while, uh, he was in jail. He'd been in jail for a year because... Um, you know, one of the spiritual practices of of the commune was drugs, <laughs> and so uh, you know that, that worked. And he started off in Haight Ashbury, and that kind of worked there, but it didn't work in Tennessee. So he was in jail when I got there, and but for a year, and, and then they let him out. And so I'd been there for a while, and then he, I met him for the first time, and um, and when I met him. Um, you know, I thought we'd have an ordinary, simple conversation. How are you? You know, he'd ask me where I'm from and what am I up to and just kind of ordinary things. Instead, he just, he just was quiet and looked at me. And he looked into my eyes and my, my experience I had was my mind exploded in a beautiful way. It's like my mind just went out and out and out into the stars and um, felt quite profound. And, um, and then maybe it was this contact high from all the acid he'd done. And, uh, but anyways, but then um, I got nervous because you're supposed to say something socially, right? You're supposed to do, you know, socially, you can't just stand there in silence. You're supposed to talk and say something. So I blurted something out and, uh, and I collapsed back. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
So I hadn't learned how to be comfortable yet with silence, let things happen. So idle speech, what does it cover? What does it prevent? What does it get in the way of in terms of depth of connection and what's possible? So if you want to walk this Buddhist path, one of the things you could do is to start paying attention to your speech and what you say and uh, give some care to it. Not because it's a moralistic obligation to do it and you're, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's you know, ethical, you know, it's, it's, I mean, it's some kind of moralistic idea that thou shalt be honest. But hopefully it's a happier motivation than that. It's a beautiful and happy thing to walk a path of freedom and liberation. It's a beautiful and happy thing to walk a path that supports our community around us and benefits the world around us. And so to be care, and, and one of the primary ways and many of us interact with the world and, and interact with ourselves is through speech. And so to be, give some care to that and to take some responsibility and take your time in speak, speaking. Be mindful as you speak. Uh, be aware of what you're doing when you're speaking. Stay in touch, stay grounded in yourself when you speak. It's so easy when we speak to lose touch with ourselves. I've talked to enough people, kind of not so much in the Buddhist scene, but outside, who I get a sense when they're speaking that they're addicted. And, um, you know, that they're kind of caught, they're, they're, they're something really absorbed in some kind of addiction, some idea or some feeling or something. And, you know, so there's been a few times where I want to just go, like, wave my hand in front of their eyes and say, you know, wait a minute, I, you know, it's going to break the trance they were in. So anyway, to be careful with our speech, to pay attention to what we're doing, to be grounded. Um, okay, I think... I hope it, uh, the idea of this path of right speech is something that uh, you'll think, think about and hopefully think about it in ways that will make you happy. It's a beautiful thing. We have about five minutes before the end. Does anyone want to make any comments or have any questions or have any protests? <laughs> yes. What is it? Right. Uh, uh, the right uh, is the word is sama in Pali, and uh, 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 it can mean right. It could also mean complete. It could also mean um, uh, thorough. Uh, it's almost always translated into English as right. But it's the right, not in terms of right and wrong in some moralistic way, but rather the same idea that we would, uh, when we use right, we're talking about the right tool. Um, so if you have a screw that needs to be screwed in, the right tool is a screwdriver, uh, not a jackhammer. So we say you, get, you need the right tool for the job. So in that sense of right, the appropriate, the appropriate for the task. Yes? Sometimes we are in a situation where uh, we might say something which is literally a lie, but uh, the intention is, you know, the truth might hurt the other person. So the yeah, intention we... might be noble. So what to do in such? So, uh, so he says that sometimes there might be a situation where the intention is to benefit someone, but what's required is to lie. And you know, there's you know, philosophy, philosophy departments are filled with questions like this. <laughs> you know, they love these kinds of questions, extreme questions. What would you do if um, the um, 
and so the question is, is uh, so I think the Buddhist, general Buddhist approach is you want to be really cautious with that um, and try to figure out uh, to, to say what you need to accomplish without having to lie. So, you know, uh, you know uh, after the bride is, is dressed for the wedding and she asks you, what do you think of the dress? <laughs> and you really think it's hideous. <laughs> it's probably not the time to have that kind of honesty. It's not what's called for. But you don't say, you know, you, you, maybe you don't have to say, well, it's, you know, it's gorgeous or it's like that's the greatest dress I've ever seen. But maybe it's possible to say something like, you don't, you don't answer the question directly, right? You say something like, uh, you know, you look stunning in it. You know, so is there some, some way of not lying, but also not, you know, but saying something which is appropriate? And so I think giving some care and thought about how you can say things. It doesn't sound manipulative. You're not trying to, you know, get around it, but something that's honest that suits the, suits the task that you're trying to do, the caring for someone, I think has a high value because um, I think it has a lot of value that people know that they can trust you. That people, and you can kind of know, some, I know some people who it's so clear to me that this is a person who's not going to lie. They're going to be really careful about it. And to me, it's, for the most part, those people, are, it's very, very assuring to be around those kinds of people. It's very meaningful to be around those people. And so if you uh, f- uh, feel like you need to kind of say things where you have to lie, then, um, you know, you might not, you know, and they find out their trust in you might not be there. So try to find some other way to say it. But then I do also know people who can't lie. You know, you know them, they're really going to be honest but they're not very wise about how they're being honest. And uh, sometimes I've even felt that they're being not exactly lazy, but um, um, kind of lazy. They're not really taking responsibility of the situation they're in. They're just going to like, it doesn't really matter what anybody else thinks. I'm just going to say it, say it as I see it. And they're very honest, but there isn't a care. There isn't, uh, it isn't kind and it's not compassionate. Uh, so how to hold these things together, I think, are very important. Yes. So, can you use the mic, please? Um, it seems like uh, bluntness and compassion are rarely <laughs> going to happen at the same time. Are there examples uh, in the Dharma or where kind of a blunt tool or blunt speech is appropriate? Uh, it turns out that in the in the Buddhist discourses, of the, the, it's supposed to be the record of the Buddhist conversations with people. Uh, when he spoke to his disciples, people who were his monks, um, he, uh, the word in English is that he's often, often enough, he's rebuking them. So he's like, he's pretty blunt. He says, you know, sometimes he says, uh, you fool. <laughs> now, is that right speech? Mm-hmm. I don't know, but then you ask for examples. And <laughs> <laughs> It's interesting that in Buddhism, uh, you know, in, in, uh, in like in Christianity, I believe, um, you know, the, the idea of being a sinner is really important, or not being a sinner is important, I guess. And um, in, um, in Buddhism, they don't have the notion of sin, and the idea of someone being a sinner is not such a, you know, not, not a concept. But the comparable conce- concept is a fool. <laughs> you know, you're, you're, so rather than being, you've, you've sinned, you've been really foolish. 
and I think it, so to me, in my mind at least, it has a different kind of meaning and connotation. If you just end up, you know, if you just see, you know, you fool by itself, it seems kind of harsh and cruel. But there are behaviors which are really awful that people do. And rather than saying, you know, you've sinned now and you're damned, if you say, you're, that was foolish, it actually kind of opens up a possibility for them to become wiser. That's the task. Um, so I think it's had, there's some meaning to saying you fool in, in, the right, in the right time and place. And the right time and place with Buddha was people who had committed themselves to him as their teacher. So there's a whole different permission that's allowed then. Last one, yes. That actually led right into my question, which was about divisive speech. Can you talk a little bit about um, how you can disagree with injustice or um, you know something that you really feel you need to speak out about? Um, I mean, when there is a difference of opinion or a different view, I mean, how do you get around that? Uh, I think you, one of the things. One of I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Because it's so situational, there's so many different contexts and ways. But one of the uh, starting points to address that, your question is, uh, for what purpose do you want to speak? Do you know the purpose? What are you trying to accomplish? Is it just for you to get your opinion out? So there's other guidelines that Buddhism gives as well around speech. So the ones I gave here about right speech was uh, no lying, no um, divisive speech, no... Har- no uh, harsh speech and no um, uh, idols chatter. The other guidelines the Buddha gave elsewhere was um, you should, speak, uh, you should uh, <clears throat> consider these things before you speak. Is what you're going to say true? Is what you say going to say timely? It's the right time to say it. <clears throat> is what you're going to say beneficial? Is, is it useful to say it? And even something might be true, sometimes it's not useful to say it. So, why bother? And then uh, the, uh, the other is, is, does it lead to concord? Does it bring people together in harmony in some way? And the fifth, is it kind? And so, the, so uh, classically in Buddhism, you would actually, you know, not all the time, but especially in important conversations uh, like this, you would ask yourself those questions. And so for you, the first question is, for what purpose do you want, are you speaking up against injustice? Um, uh, if you really feel like it's useful, you can make a difference. Uh, that's very different than uh, you just kind of feel like you need to vent and you know speak up, and um, which might not be useful at all for anybody. Um, but if, you, if, it, if it's useful to do, if, if injustice is happening in front of you, um, then uh, the hope, I hope, that we make a difference and help out somehow. But that takes a lot of wisdom to know each situation, uh, what's needed. I remember once um, driving in San Francisco and to intervene, there was this car that came, came careening down the street and kind of screeched to a halt in the intersection. And out of the back seat, this woman tumbled out and kind of stumbled onto the middle intersection. And these two big football kind of guys got out of the car and they wanted that woman. And so, you know, and she was backing away and they were going after her. So what do, what do I do? You know, and they were big, you know, and I... <laughs> so um, I kind of got into the intersection and kind of stood between them, and uh, between those two guys and this woman. And they, they would, you know, they would approach me, and I would take a step back. 
and, and they'd approach me. We had a little conversation and, you know, and I'd step back, you know, and that was basically the dance. And it, it wasn't, didn't look so good. And, uh, but I was trying to help with an injustice. I thought it was, I don't know what was going on, but, you know, it didn't seem good to me what was going on. And, um, and then this other guy came out, out of, you know, the, came on the sidewalk and he came over and he kind of, I didn't get exactly in the middle of the whole scene, but standing right next to it there. And I said, he said, he said to the, the two big guys, he said, you know, if I was in this woman's position, um, I hope you would come and, and intervene and check out what's going on. The whole thing calmed down. Everyone calmed down. The whole thing's, you know. So, you know, he didn't stand there and say, it's what you're doing is unjust. You know, he just had this very wise thing that made a big difference at that time. So what, you know, but the, my hope, so I don't know how we say it, what we do, but I hope that in, uh, we always find a way to try to intervene, we try to find the wise way. And that one of the functions of Buddhist practice is to make us fearless so that we're willing to uh, stand our ground, we're willing to face uh, injustice, face struggle, face conflict, and deal with it in an honest and direct way. My hope is that Buddhists are, uh, Buddhist practice leads to people who are um, unlikely to get into conflict, but who are not conflict-aversive. So if there is conflict, they're willing to, to stay there and be present for it and then figure out what needs to happen. That's my hope. Okay, so um, thank you. <laughs>